Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of writers and artists over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life and the industry, politics, composition, whatever. If you ask me, songwriters are some of the most worldly and intelligent people I've ever come across. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. Now I'm co-producing this with my friend Joe London, who was nominated for a Grammy earlier this year for Best Country Song. He makes us sound like angels. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, go to Spotify and look up our playlist, And The Writer Is, or go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, this week's guest is The Script. The Script is one of the biggest bands in all the United Kingdom. In fact, they're probably the second biggest band to ever come out of Ireland next to U2. They sell out 80,000 seats in Dublin. And they sell out stadiums and arenas across Europe, South Africa, Australia. They are huge. And one of the best parts is that they've gotten huge because they talk about real things in their lives. So they start very small. When you start small and you're specific, then maybe then you can speak to the world. So I'm excited for you to meet Danny O'Donoghue and Mark Sheehan, the main writers from the band. But first, a few notes behind this podcast. The third member, Glenn Power, was not here. He's not one of the main writers, but he's obviously essential to the band. We do talk about how he's influenced the sound of the script. We also talk about Doug Morris. Um, Doug is the only executive to lead all three major labels, Atlantic and Warner Music from 1980 to 1994, Universal Music from 1995 to 2010, and Sony Music since July 2011 through now. So without further ado, here's the conversation we had with Danny O'Donoghue and Mark Sheehan from The Script on And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. Today's band can boast the following things. They've released number one songs, number one albums, been nominated for Brits. They've opened for U2 and this new kid, Paul McCartney. They've had superstars like Pharrell open for them in front of a sold-out Croke Park in Dublin, which is roughly 80,000 people. Yeah, 82,000. Yeah. Who's okay, counting? Yeah, right. Who's I'll, counting? I'll, I'll go 85. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, but uh, uh, on, the, on the first day I met them, they reminded me that they're the second biggest band from Ireland. <laughs> uh, and the writer is R, uh, the most humble artist to ever headline stadiums, Danny O'Donoghue and Mark Sheehan from The Script. Ooh, yay. Yay. Okay, so here we are in Santa Monica, California, far yep. from the island you... Uh, Started in. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating is how many of the English artists 
are inspired by American artists, artists are, you know, yeah. uh, American artists inspired by yeah, English, English artists. Yeah. Where did you start listening to Tribe Called Quest? Like, who introduces you to that? What happened was, in Ireland, we never had MTV for a long time. So I'd heard about MTV being an American anomaly, this thing that was happening in, uh, in the, in, over here. It was a long time going. I mean, you had a Yo! MTV raps at this stage. Yeah. You had lots of big shows going, and, and we'd only heard about them. We'd never been able to tune them in. And yeah. What sort of happened after around 12 o'clock at night, one of the TV channels at home start to, after 12 o'clock, you know the way it would go to sort of a test screen thing where they wouldn't show anything? Uh-huh. It, it was like a fuzzy thing. MTV started to come through on their channel after 12 o'clock. So all the kids started to go really, uh, staying up really late and tuning this music channel in. It was really, really, we were getting, we were seeing all these like black kids dancing in colorful clothes and rapping and all the stuff. And it was like, oh, what the hell is going on here? This is a whole movement of music that wasn't reaching us. We, we just couldn't get it. So it created this real hunger. I started to go into this, um, it was a place called Abbey Discs in Dublin, was a, a record store where they used to specialize in imported music. And I was a professional dancer at the time, so I used to teach all no people way. break dancing, all the stuff. For so, real? Yeah, he was my student. That's how, I, that's how I met him. So that was what I was doing when I was Is a kid. Is that real? Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was doing when I was a kid. I was, I was into everything, singing, dancing, playing. I was doing all the, all the stuff. And, well, you uh, said, you know, just to even just to paint the picture. Yeah. You know, you're telling me from the beginning about when we're talking about lyrics and what we're working on. Yeah. So much of it has to be about the blue collar upbringing you guys yeah. had because yeah. that's really natural and where yeah. you're from. Exactly. So this isn't it's not like you're taking dance classes. Like if you tell somebody from the valley here that you were in dance classes, yeah. you're probably some rich kid who like who's <laughs> no, doing we're, ballet no, no, we're talking about we, we're, what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about uh, hip hop dancing, break dancing just didn't exist in Ireland. Like, I, I mean, until literally this whole surge and wave of MTV and stuff started to happen, young kids started to freak out. So as we're importing all these records, everybody wants to do the same sort of dancing as going on in these. And breakdance was, was Where are you learning it thing. from? Like, the street. Television. We used to roll out Lilonium on the ground and we'd all practice moves and full-on breakdance. So I, I was like the small kid amongst all the the older boys and they used me to spin on their heads or they used me as like a prop and they'd throw me around the place because I was really athletic at the time. So Were you guys doing it on the street? Like, yeah, yeah, on like the street. street performers? Street performing, yeah, yeah. Were you making any money from it? He was making bank. I'll, I'll just cut in here. <laughs> yeah. I met him. I walked by this class. It was um, obviously it's kind of, he'd started very small and then was like people really wanted to learn. So we got people throwing money at him. Can you teach me what to do what you're doing? Because he was really, I mean, he's, like I'm underplaying, he was a really good dancer. And uh, so I was walking by class one day and I seen, I just seen this one guy at the top of the class and there's like 30 girls in awe at this one dude. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing playing soccer on the weekends? I got like 22 dudes running after a ball. This is like 20 girls running after two balls. Two balls. <laughs> <laughs> Ginger balls. Yeah, <laughs> so I kind of switched teams basically. I was like, this is what I'm doing from now on. Yeah, um, and that's, how, to be honest, that's how I... Um, started listening to kind of um, R&B and hip-hop was yeah. through, through dance classes and through, like I said, MTV and, and then just going down to him because whatever we were kind of playing commercially in the classes, we were then like obviously going down, you know, playing the hardcore stuff, you know, um, back in our own... It, it, it was honestly time, really you know? just a way to earn money to pay for our studio time. That's really what I was getting Wait, to. Wait, when, when was this? 
Uh, yeah. I mean, late 80s, early 90s, sort of. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and, uh, I had a friend who owned a recording studio, but he never allowed me to use it for free. Yeah, he used to make me pay for it. So I would dance all day to make money, and then I would pay for the studio. He'd give me it from nighttime, from like 9 o'clock at night. I could take the studio all the way through the night because his students and stuff weren't using the studio. So that's when I could get the studio time. So really, our only studio time was after I'd finished dance, after they'd finished their... Uh, studio sessions then we get in and then we start to try and make this music that we were hearing all and you the time. Pl- so you obviously played both of you guys must have been playing music your whole he, life though, yeah well yeah, he, right? he'd been Dan had grown up in a family of musicians so he's the youngest of six right um, so yeah they're all musicians so from that his must father. have been a very loud house <laughs> yeah it, yeah well, it really was I mean we, we were t- chatting about it yesterday um, we had like those two rooms downstairs the front room the back room and the back room was called the music room Um. I would, long before I was born, they made a decision that anybody who, who walked into that room was able to write on the walls. Right? I don't know, my mum came up with this, just let the kids be creative. Um, so the, the first person wrote their name on the wall, and the second and third, and over the course of probably 20 years, anybody who'd walked into that room wrote their name on the wall, or yeah. like a top ten list, or a, you know, the same, you know, slagging people or whatever. So, but that ended up being my room, so I used to sleep on a mattress on the floor in this... Um, what looked like, if anybody can picture, is exactly what any shitty backstage looks like. Do you know what I mean? Like just names of bands yeah, and things venue. and faces and, you know, your best picture, you get like all done in Sharpie and stuff. But this is the room I grew up in. But in that room, there was a piano, a bass and a guitar because my brother yeah. played guitar, my other brother played bass and my dad played piano. <clears throat> so if I was bored, there was no such thing as being bored right. in my house. You know, just my, some of my first memories are of me with my head like, looking up and I have my head on the sustain pedal on the piano and I'm just like plucking the strings just listening to how long the sustain is on them just, that's one of my first memories I'm just like bling 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 yeah. hearing harmony and just like spacing out and that stuff um, but it was a very loud household there was music were you writing, 24 so hours were you writing music when you were born? I was writing yeah, when I was born I came out like no I mean Aah. I mean we were saying that yesterday that you guys probably are born and, and Rod Stewart's playing <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> what, beating what, like a drum and there's like you know, in the horses, world I love yeah, you rolling off my tongue yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, sort of what? like your your Lion King moment of like them lifting you up yeah. and they're like Does that, sorry there's all fiddlers and we're going playing. My no, my dad. He used to tell a story that um, when I was going to bed, he used to play Elton John. So he used to remember that he, we had a reel to reel back in the day. For all you kids, just go and look that up on your yeah. your on the fizzy magic, the World Wide Web. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he remembers hearing like Daniel Meyer going up, and I was like, obviously had heard it so much that I was standing up in the cot and I was reefing the reel to reel, like yeah, pulling yeah, yeah. it down. Um, but I, I got a really good education, I think, in music from everybody in my family having different genres of music. My brother was into um, heavy metal, Metallica. My other brother was like Deep Purple, Hoodoo Gurus, and did they look like, down on on, Joe. on this on the my, hated, my, yeah, my brother, my brother, particularly my brother Dara, because he was like shredder, guitar shredder, like oh, James Hetfield and all these yeah. kind of people. He just uh, absolutely, um, I'd say, despised pop. He just hated anything to do that was like he deemed a little bit cheesy. Sure, but he mm. was just—I mean, looking back on it, he was just too cool for his own, you know, for his own good. Because I, I remember the first time I heard uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit." I remember the street we were on. We were on the Edens in Chicago, driving <laughs> north, and we're we're in a car, and on comes 
Kurt Cobain, and I remember my sister and my mom talking about how how loud and shitty it was, yeah. <laughs> and not like because if you grew up where they're singers, yeah. then you know it's all the people who love the the you know that beautiful tone. You're like, yeah, that, but that doesn't sell records, and that isn't soulful, and that's not that's not the same thing as what I want to do. It was really interesting to be to to remember these people listening to some. I know. I guess I knew that I was onto something once yeah. I liked music that no one else in my family liked. Yeah, yeah that's you know? exactly the same. It was hard for me to kind of find a genre to kind of go right. Well, this is me. This is my identity, and I think I had a lot to do with it too because all of the other genres were almost taken already yeah, in between. your household. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of felt you're that trying one. to you're trying to carve out a little area for yourself to have music in and not be like your brothers and sisters i think that's what we, you've always tried to do everybody tries to do a little bit and by doing that you don't realize you're inadvertently learning all their styles of music sure. and things that they're listening to anyway so you get a massive uh, appreciation for singer songwriters for rock and all this sort of stuff and you just you just know it you know from being around it all the time so when you guys are in dance class yeah or whatever was it? Is that what you would call it? Or was it just no, like no? No, it was you know it was more um, yeah. Well I, well, I was a teacher, so right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So you so. guys are there, and then you guys are discussing like, yo, I play music, I write, and you're yeah. like, yeah, I play music, I yeah. write. So let's let's just pool together some money and get well. Into this, video. Uh, this is the funny story. So he Mark had um, an old Cubase system, right? That uh, that he was selling, and I was like, I just finished. I got a, fo- a Fostex for four track. And I was kind of learning how to bounce down tracks. It was like my first little um, recording, little studio that I had. You know, it was literally this tape that you could bounce down from. You know, you had four tracks. For those of you that don't know, you could record down three harmonies, yeah. and then you would you bounce marry the three them. harmonies yeah. and marry them onto the one. But every time you bounced down, it got a little bit less in quality, or it was more of a hiss. So, because I used to love harmony, so I'd be doing like trying to do boys to men style harmonies, just me on my own, you know. Yeah. And bounce them all down. And then I had like this little Yamaha D50 drum uh, kit that I was like playing along to me singing. I was just really basic stuff. But he'd, uh, he'd showed me, you know, Cubase. And I was like, this is like game changer. This is so it. You're just, hey man, after class, come with me. I'm going to yeah, show you Cubase. Yeah, because like I'd been, like, I'd been hanging awesome. out with this other friend of mine who was, a, like I said, a teacher in a sound school. So he was teaching me all night about how to be an engineer, how to program and how right. to produce and how to do all these things. So I've been learning... Like all my money that I from dancing was paying this dude. Is this in the city? Yeah, it's in Dublin City. Right Uh in the heart of city. Right in the heart of Dublin. Yeah. 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 So, um, Dan came up and he wanted to buy my system. uh, So I went up. uh, He showed me, you know, the reins, how to use it, everything. I bought it off him, and he was a smart little fucker because probably about two or three weeks anyway. After that, I paid him already for the system, brought it to my house, figured out how to use it, was making tracks, and he was like. Do you want to come back down to the house? We start writing together. So I basically brought my his system that he had just sold me Sick. back down to his house, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was back where it was, it was before. <laughs> right. Start making so music. We, we were just down there. And, yeah, Sick we move. we just yeah. we just started um, we'll make, we'll making make music Jewish by the end of this yeah, interview. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. I probably yeah, I'm probably yeah, Mark yeah, Sheenberg. Yeah, Sheenberg. Anyway, I'm allowed to say that, guys. Okay. Um, so is that how my town starts? 
yeah, yeah it would have been exactly. yeah that we we would have kicked that off right then and there and that i suppose that's where it all came from that love of well let's go back yeah. my town is your first band yeah so is it at this point you take this system home you figure out how to do it you go back and then it's like oh, let's see what happens if we it's your first co-write then right yeah yeah right? we just start to write songs together then yeah mm. so that becomes my town or do you start adding the other members and we're like ah oh, let's start a band yeah it's kind of we just we came sort of fast friends sort of through songwriting actually at the time Danny was doing his own thing and I was doing my own thing so we were trying to get these two things off the ground and it wasn't really working and I'd come to America there was a massive um, it's called the, the Emerging Artist Talent and Music Festival in Edom Vegas Edom Festival okay. back in the day Way back. and they were having about 180 bands all apply to go in and uh, and do it. So I applied. I just said, fuck it, you know. Um, well, Irish, you want to go to Vegas? I'd never set foot in America before in my life, and I just wanted to do this. And um, and our demo tape got passed around, passed around, passed around. It was, I just got told it was too late. They closed all the... Just something the two of you guys had done. Yeah, just, mm-hmm. just music. That was what was it. the song called? I don't remember, actually. Uh, Time Will Tell. There was probably a song called Time Will Tell. There was, there, there was, was, it, there was, was it probably good? about six songs. No, it was terrible. Time Will Tell is pretty good. It was... Like really poppy, really poppy, but it was a good song. I got you got the ears of people over here. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> okay, so then they they hear the they demo hear this, they, they hear yeah. the demo after the after they closed all the uh, the I guess the, the applications and everything else. And it was actually uh, the daughter of a, a very big lawyer over here, Ken Hertz. Oh yeah, a music lawyer. And his daughter heard the song and said, "You need to have these guys." And a video as well of us performing it and all this stuff. And he and he said, "Holy shit, hold on!" So he called the guys up. And he said. You know, you don't have a band like this on. Maybe you should have these guys on. They really want to do it, and they'll fly themselves over. And so they took us in, told us we could do it. So we get in. There's 180. How do you band. fly yourselves over to yeah, Vegas? Yeah, we, we were broke as hell. Like I mean, I, I remember arriving to Vegas, but about 180 dollars in my pocket. And that's all I had. We couldn't go anywhere. We we just stayed at this one little motel, and then entered this competition. And everybody was so shitty to us. I mean, it was so bad because they were all what. They were all rockers like and yeah, really oh, yeah. mean. Yeah, they were really mean to us. They fucking hated us. But so we won. We came out of it as the the only band to get a record offered record deal out of this whole thing. So no one else got it. And yeah, it was crazy. So uh, we got offered a record deal as My Town with Universal Music through Doug Morrison. Doug Morrison signed us on like for one of the biggest deals in, in pop history. history. Yeah, for a new signing. What? Yeah. yeah. So we got signed from, from this Vegas competition. Yeah, yeah. So we got signed as. Was, so he was there, or was well, he, they, somebody told him? People like, from from his from Universal yeah. times there, and this is at the time when Doug Morris was the most powerful man in the music industry. Yeah. He's been running Universal, and it's a massive thing. And they flew us to New York. We showcased in New York for him. Uh, to, for him, exactly. yeah. And, he, and they signed us on the spot. And uh, at that point, had you flown back to Ireland? And back to yeah, we flew back to Ireland, and then he flew us back. We flew back to Ireland, then we got wind that they're really yeah. interested in the deal. Basically, the deal closer would be you just come back over, go straight for the head, so he can go. Yeah, sign off on it. Mm. We, we and he brought a, um, and then he put the rest of the band members together. No, no, oh, we, no were, we, we were already we had we had oh, okay, members okay. Yeah, yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, he just he showcased us and signed us on the spot, and it was kind of welcome to the family. And suddenly, Doug Morris was. What ha- I mean, what happens? How are you the, you know, when you get that contract, how mm-hmm. is it that you don't, you know, what happened? <laughs> well, you get about two why years don't I know my town? Why do I yeah, know? Well, <laughs> two years before that, we'd been offered this, this contract with Universal for £250. And then two years later, we got offered by Doug Morris in New York City. We got offered for $15 million. So if you can imagine, it was the biggest signing in pop history for a new band to sign. They signed us for seven albums. It was massive. 
Um, and then it all went wrong. It all just fucking flopped. Um, we made this massive record. We spent millions on the record, nearly $2 million on this record. We'd worked with Teddy Riley. We'd worked with Dallas Austin. We'd worked with... Because uh, you were doing, at this point, you're doing, I assume it's similar to the first album where there's a little bit of rap in the verses. Yeah, yeah, and kind a little, of, yeah. You know, like, yeah. It, it, so it felt, you know, that that kept it, it was, at that time, I mean, there weren't a lot of bands doing that. Yeah, no, it was, no. I'm not saying it was a way ahead of its time, because if you listen to it now, you kind of go, okay, well, it, it seems like an old dated sound. Yeah. But at the time, it was a little bit more street the, and yeah. a little bit more down the urban road than... I guess our white counterparts were 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 doing at the time. I, that's just it. I mean, sometimes, like you know yourself, you know the the actual amount of bands that get signed is very very high, but the amount of ones that actually stick their head above the clouds is so infinitesimally small. I mean, um, for us, that was at the time a massive failure because we'd like spend all our you know time and effort putting into the band. We'd gone around you know gone around the houses with all these different uh, production teams. But the one thing that I have to say that that the reason why we are where we are today is that when we were going around, we were we were writing with likes you know likes of um, Montel Jordan, Billy Steinberg, who wrote like "Falling Into You" for Celine Dion, and uh, "Drove All Night" Roy Orbison. Those great great lyricists, like, that, a, virgin. like a virgin like from Madonna. Um, these great lyrics. Um, we we literally just acted like sponges. You know, we knew we didn't really know too much. Well, as much as everybody else, as far as writing. So we just acted like sponges. We just sat in the back of the room, shut the fuck up, and learn your craft. Yeah, and that's what we did. So it was like the best uh, music college degree you could have gone. To be honest, how, was, how old were you guys at the time? He's, he's, 19, he's 18, you, were, 19. you were just turning eighteen. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I was just, just leaving nineteen. Sort of. So, did you release the album? Yeah, it came out. It came out in America. It all around the world. It um, it did okay. It we start having uh, massive issues where um, we'd release a song in the states and then. Maybe two weeks later, it'd be a weird article in Billboard, which I still have at home, saying mysteriously, uh, "My Town Song" drops out of charts. They don't know why. We had a lot of internal battles going on inside the music industry. It was, believe it or not, it was why? at a time when all the mergers were happening. Oh right, everyone was. It's all a terrible murdered. time to be. I was in a couple bands that had deals yeah. at the time, and it's. It was a tough time to just be in a band. Let yeah, alone and, and you were putting songs out. They were falling it. out, and all this stuff was happening. We were touring our asses off, and yeah. Nothing was really happening. So myself and Danny kind of lost heart and we just wanted to get out of it and just said we want to... Was it hard this. for the rest of the band? Yeah, it was really tough on everybody. And uh, Dan uh, just wanted to go and make music. I wanted to go my own way. I, I just... I was done with performing and, and, and doing that and I just didn't want to do it anymore. It was done. Yeah, you screwed that up, by the way. Yeah, I know. It all <laughs> messed now, up. Yeah. Well, I went, I went back to Ireland <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, uh, and Dan uh, wanted to go make a solo record. So... Well, time passed and we realized that, um, well, we should be making a bit more music together. And a friend of ours called us in Orlando, wanting us to go to Orlando and said, look, I know you're not in a deal anymore and I know you're not in your band anymore, but I've been offered to make a record. Was any chance you guys would come and make my record with me? Because she loved our, um, our style of writing and all that stuff. So we went to Orlando and... Um, was that cool to sort of get the phone call being like, you know... I, <clears throat> yeah, it was, it, it was awesome yeah. because I think for the most part we were in Ireland kind of licking our wounds a little bit. We were like, oh, I don't really know if I'm cut out for this industry because yeah. this was like, how how could this have gone wrong? Right. You know what I mean? I, how do you get another big chance like this? You know, kind of these things only come across once. I, like, all my family had and been it was in a, the it was a industry. proper public failure, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. especially in this. I mean, yeah. you were saying that Ireland's, what, five million people. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine that in your, your communities, 
everyone, they, everyone, everyone knew you guys this. got the record deal. Yeah. You've been flying back and forth. It was on BBC big, News as yeah. breaking news as the biggest signing in pop history. You know, so people knew we had signed this massive. Were people hitting giant. you guys up for cash? And yeah, yeah. You just suddenly had. That's what <laughs> yeah. we said. It's like we, winning the lottery. I mean, you don't want other people to know too much. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like we all say, where there's a will, there's a relative. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's really you know, funny. so yeah. it's it's kind of true. But like, um, it was yeah, it was amazing to get the call, um, and we kind of we just literally took over like a. Tr- do you remember the old Rackmount Trinity, the Trinity yeah. Cork Trinity? So we had one Rackmount Trinity, a keyboard, a guitar, and that was it. That's pretty much it. And we packed, we just literally packed a bag. We we you know fuck all money. Um, th- they were paying the tickets over. They were gonna, and um, we ended up staying in the person's house that we were producing with. So it wasn't like a big money thing. We we're like coming over, sleep. I was sleeping on the couch again, you know, kind of scenario. Um, but we just wanted to put our head down and. Did fo- she have a deal? She yeah, ha- yeah she time, had a deal yeah. at the time. Yeah. Who, who was it? Can I ask? I actually no. married her, so to my wife, weirdly enough. Um, she what? Yeah, her, well, Rena. Uh, yeah, she was signed to Johnny Wright, and it was yeah, of course. She was on Big tour manager. with Britney Spears, and uh, you know, she kind of grew up with Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, all those guys, all in the same sort of camp as those guys. And her whole life is just being entertainment. And she just she just sort of cold calls you, or did you know her we, from touring? Known, known her from touring here or there, and gotten to know her. And she just said, "Look, was she your girlfriend her. at the time? Not really. No, we kind of had seen each other, met each other, kind of." I guess became friends, but not. not. And then she hits you up and she's like, "Come to, yeah, you need to, to come over and let's do this." Yeah, and you yeah. guys were both probably. This is great. You know her. It's not like yeah. a random person. No, no. So uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. We did it, and Johnny Wright then gave us his studio time, and um, and then we start great working in with though. I mean, just yeah. to show John. I mean, for Johnny was, Wright was managing the biggest exactly, pop and stars he, we done. We, we ended up at the time getting a remix for uh, NSYNC. We ended up doing a bunch of different things that were. Starting to start to make sense, or is that's how the whole as producers, as producers and writers, yeah, yeah. and that's how the, the the Ricky Martin story came in because we ended up working with a local producer there who says Ricky Martin's looking for music, Britney's looking for music, so suddenly we were in that world where we were throwing shopping songs out and trying to get, we were signed to Zomba again, and suddenly we were like, well, what? Are All, we gonna do? How fast was it from hey, will you come to Orlando to here's a deal from Zomba? Uh, probably about maybe a year. Yeah, probably a year of that. So we were we yeah. were in Orlando and like you know if you invite Irish people in, it's always like be careful who you let in the door because right. we will we come in and up. take over. I'm just yeah. act like I'm sitting at the back. Minding my own business, but I'm yeah. working the whole place out, and I'm going to be sitting at that desk writing this song, <laughs> kicking you out of your room in a while. But we've always had this mentality, so getting into the studio, we just got in there, you know, as much as you can. We ended up knowing, uh, trying to like hanging out with mixers and producers, just trying to get in anywhere we could. And we make we met a great uh, production team actually called Rip Rock and Alex G, who ended up they did like eight songs on the first Insync record and six yeah. songs on the second. Like they were right yeah. in there. And they kind of they were almost like our doors into Zomba, because we were we were the only people at the time doing two step, and they're not American two step. Yeah, can you like, explain what that is? Yeah, it's yeah. like Artful Dodger. You remember Craig David? Like yeah, Craig sure. David two step yeah. like it's like kind of yeah. English garage kind of style. And we were the only let's say two white guys in the whole of America doing this type of music. Yeah, if you wanted a remix, maybe you had to send it back to to the UK. So we ended up doing, uh, we did a load of remixes, um, th- with the biggest one being the, the Justin Timberlake Gone song called Gone. And then that got the, perked the ears up of Zomba. So they sent down uh, a really cool guy actually called Eric Beale. Um, and Eric Beale just like listened through our catalogue and was like, 
awesome let's sign a deal so we'd gone from like we were we were back starving again you know we had at that particular time we were living in a house we had the electricity had gone in the house we'd stole ice from the front of the gar (laughs) we'd stole a bunch of ice because our electricity had gone so all the food in the fridge was gonna go off so we stole ice from the local gas station you know like it was all out in, in orlando yeah yeah, the, yeah. so we, we stole ice brought it back to the house took it all out put it in the bath put all the food in the in the thing it was it was that's the time that, that was, was yeah, you know we were living in a rat infested house no and, your parents at the time are, oh well no we're like they think we're living in like you know they're, no, they're like doing very mid, well for themselves 2000s right yeah yeah so there's they're, they're thinking three four maybe okay so they think that you're you're living the dream yeah. and you're like kind of yeah, yeah we're, we're in we're america lying about it we're i lying think that's about it. people don't realize that just because you're in the studio doesn't mean you're making money you're only making no. money yeah and, we, and, the, and the thing was we were being booked out like um I, I could program so i was being hired out as just a programmer Dan was doing vocal production and sort of sometimes just playing guitar so you guys are a proper production team yeah 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 we really were and we were did you have a name as a well, we'd team? call ourselves Mad Notes Production, me and Mark and Danny. Uh-huh. Mad, and we are mad. Um, but yeah, we are Mad Notes Productions, and we still carry that name today. Um, that's what we, we started out doing and writing for other people and getting brought into all these situations where, you know. What explains, you know, a lot of times artists are listed as producers on their albums, yeah. but they're not necessarily that yeah. much involved, and it makes a lot of sense yeah. why your identity can be you know seemingly organic for through all of your albums because yes. you have a certain flavor as well a yeah we, we, we produced basically every song even for the script that we'd ever done uh has to and always had to start with us there's a whole point of it was that it was stories and derived from our lives like a diary yeah and that was the whole point and we just wanted to be kind of a funky pop band that people could if they walked into a pub and we were playing the corner they go, you know, I love their, I love their take on music. I love their interesting yeah. stories, and I love that. And that was really all it was. It just so happened that the band started here in Los Angeles. Didn't you know? We were, we moved all our production team. We moved it to Los Angeles from to Orlando. And, from Orlando, yeah. We came here How did, to try who, make some money. Who pays for you to get over here? No, we did ourselves. Did was, you drive? Did yeah, you I drove a U-Haul truck all the way from Orlando with my gear in the back and drove here. You just stay on the 10 freeway, which ends literally a block way. south yeah. of where we are right yeah. now. <laughs> that, so. was what, that was what was funny. And then we arrived here. And it's such a big country. I don't think people realize that from, from L.A. to El Paso is when the same four. distance from El Paso to Austin. When you're 14 like hours. through the country. You're 14 <laughs> hours driving in Texas and we're, we're still in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> That's like Texas a, is crazy. It's crazy, yeah. So yeah, we came here. We moved Were here. you both in the U-Haul? No. Not uh, him and his wife. And and wife. I, just got, I just got the plane. So were you, mar- were you, you got married in Florida? No, no. Again, I got married in Mexico, actually, um, years later. But no, at this time, we weren't married. Oh, not, uh, not your wife yet. No. Uh, and uh, we came here and we set up shop. We got a little apartment here. And Danny ended up moving in with some friends in Venice Beach. And our, his friend there um, was a mixer who had a studio. So we, he, he let us use that studio. He used to work in um, it's this place um, down on, oh, God, what was it called? Cloud Nine. Cloud 19. Mm. Cloud 19, and it was a DVD authoring facility. So during the day, they used to, like, basically my job during the day was to, like, watch old... What the, I'll explain what they used to do. So they used to take old videos, so all, like, Betamax and right. video, and transfer them onto DVD. So what they used to do then was they I had to watch the, the movie, segregate the movie into, like, 18 different scenes, name the scenes... 
Like as in like, you know, yeah, a sure. hero's return. Right. You know, like he, King Solomon, you know, King Solomon's mind. Somebody like, oh, does that. I, I did crazy. that. I did that. Yeah. I like over 200 bloody titles, right? Yeah. So, uh, so we used to do that. And um, also the... When you you know like when you're you know when you're so hammered drunk you come home and watch a DVD and then they have like this thirty second piece of music which is like and it starts it's again and it's yeah, so yeah, annoying and you just like wake up in the morning you're so hungover and it's like the same piece so of music yeah, yeah. going again and again well that was me <laughs> that, I used to create those little 30 second pieces of music to wreck your head yeah. and then like then then Did got, Z- was this is like does Zamba publish that no 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 I, I listen I like as much as you're it's just nice, doing that on the side yeah, it's yeah, nice to have a, it's nice to have a publishing company but the money runs out yeah Do you know what I'm saying there, yeah. there's only so much you can uh, you can kind of ask them for, can you pay for this? Can you pay for that? And then the rest you're on your own. So I was hustling during the day. I was doing that. They all left at six o'clock. Boom. I had the studio from six till whenever, just like to do whatever I wanted to do. So it was always a good trail. I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to this right now has that same thing. They got to, yeah. you know, they got to take a few to give a few, I suppose. So when did you guys then start writing again for yourself? Well, he was doing he was doing a, a solo record, and I come over to help him with a solo record because again, I'm still in the mind frame of I don't want to go near the industry right. again. I was only interested in writing songs at this point. I figured I could just come in, um, be ambiguous, and just lay in the background, just help him make music and get him out there. But it wasn't it wasn't going great for him in that time. He had interest, and it was going you know. But the, I think the music was probably wrong at the time, and um, we just said, "Let's." You know, Were let's... you shopping them? Was sort of like, "Ah, oh, these are these are yeah. are not my. Uh, That's not right for me as an artist. So let's try to." Well, no, it was, no, it was more it? shopping him as an artist, trying to get a record right. deal as an artist. Yeah, and then we made. Uh, we decided to write these few songs, and our, my, our drummer now, Glenn, happened to come over. I met him in Dublin. I said, "Well, why don't you, he's a struggling musician. Why don't you come over?" And he was a, he's like a prodigy on drums. He's the kids unbelievable but he never owned a drum kit in his life he only he used to make his own drum kit now, this is a guy who's like one of the best drummers you've ever seen in your life and when i went to see him and he had cds um which he'd stuck to things and he, and he put um he made his own virtue of a v drum kit if you can imagine so he made yeah. he made beaters and stuff of like that that would pick up midi and he played that and i went to see what him and i was fuck? like what the fuck is this guy playing <laughs> it was like it was the worst thing i've ever seen He's playing these CDs and he's hitting these things. It was like held together by gaff or uh, duct tape and all yeah. this stuff. And I says, dude, come on to the States at me. And we come over here and we used to do this thing every Friday night here in Venice Beach where all these musicians would come in the room and everybody would just throw down. We'd all just hang on Friday nights in, in Venice and everybody, would, like, different guitarists go with different vocalists. Up. And it was like an open mic night, but just all friends. So we'd have a barbecue and just all hang. And I said to him, Let, come to that, you'll have fun, because the mic is just there. I would jump up, just just freestyle, do whatever, and he'd jump up and play, and there were just tons of musicians. And Glenn got on a real kit, you know, and I thought, yeah. let's see how good he is. And I thought he might he might sink, you know, or he might yeah. swim, but a motherfucker was surfing, you know. Yeah. And everyone in the room, all these players wouldn't, and he didn't. They didn't get him off the kit for the whole night. They wanted yeah. him to play all. Drummer night. from Nine Inch Nails and stuff. Yeah, like they were all just like jaw drop, go like. play. So they, the drummer from Nine Inch Nails, actually let him use the drum kit. So he gave him the drum kit. So we took the drum kit, and another guy offered a studio time. But Malibu, this rich guy, had a studio at his house. I forget the guy's name, but he he let us go in there for the day. A friend of a friend. Yeah, well, for two days he let us have the studio, maybe three days, and we went in and we recorded. Uh, about five songs together, just and, myself, and Danny, and Glenn. The first album, yeah, 
Yeah, there is. Oh, so, the, yeah, but before the worst, we which cry. was off the first record, mm-hmm. we cry. We all they were the first. That's the first single, right? Yeah, yeah. that was like yeah. one of the first songs we wrote as the band. So the weird thing was, we wrote those songs here in Malibu, and then um, I said, "Well, look, I know these guys who just started a record label, which is Steve Kipner and Andrew Frampton, and they just started Phonogenic Records and had so a give, massive." Give a little, just a little background of who those. So guys Steve are, Kipner because... had written uh, "Physical" for Olivia Newton John. He'd uh, oh, um, he'd also written "Genie in a Bottle." Uh, Christian Aguilera he'd written uh, he's written whatever, Hard Harbor to Break for Chicago, Chicago. I mean we're talking about it's superstar just massive he's, he's had, massive hits, he's had hits in every in every decade yeah, yeah basically yeah. and then and then and Andrew, Andrew Frampton who was a, a rising uh, producer at the time who had done massive pop things in the UK and was starting to make some big ground over here as well how did you know them well I do, we knew Steve we known Steve because back in the My Town deal it was one of the producers ah. where we'd work with and actually just became friends with him. So I said, let me call Steve up. I think Steve will uh, have a listen to this music and at least guide us. If there's anything they'll do, they'll tell us where to take this music. And at the time, me and Glenn, the drummer, were just thinking we're playing on Danny's solo record. That's all we're thinking here. And we went up and played the music for Steve and Andrew and they're freaking the hell out. And they're like, who's the band? And we're like, what do you mean? And they said, who's the band? And we're like, Okay, it's not a band. And we're like, okay, it is a band. Because we're all broke. It's not a it's it's a band. band. And they said, um, it said, is okay. a band. <laughs> so we, we, we had a back down thinking. I think they really liked that, but I think they really they really want this Yeah, they want it to be a band. Yeah, and then they called us later on. They said, look, what's the band called? And, uh, and I said, the um, script. And it was I was writing the name of the script on a piece of paper next to the phone because I was in Hollywood and I was thinking the next all these people are talking about the next big thing here all the time. Yeah. It was always a script, right? And then it was always the thing that people would say to each other when we were over here is, "What's the script, dude? What's happening? You know what's up?" And we were like, "Well, we're what's happening." So I thought, "How do you think about the script?" So we just threw that name out, and and that was what stuck. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Did you have to go to the people in your life um, and say, hey, we're getting, when you say, we got a new record deal, mm. I assume that that then happened really quick. But when you go and you tell your family, I got a new record deal, mm. or your future wife, or mm. whatever, do they. Um, did they understand how incredible that was again, or were they like, "Oh well, well, it hit, that's a death sentence"? Because they hit, didn't understand. Well, they, yeah, they, what it was. They were coming off our bad experience before, yeah. so that was a tough one. 
Um, we'd agreed to make, I'd had all the studios laid out in, in uh, LA where we were going to record, where we were going to uh -huh. write the record, and we had that whole record plan of what we were going to do, the sound of the record. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. We were about to fly Glenn over, and my mom fell t uh, terminally ill in hospital. Oh, wow. So I get a call like eight o'clock at night. I was on a plane, maybe 5 a.m. the next morning, uh, r rushing my way to Ireland to see my mother. And uh, maybe a week or two later, Danny and my wife Rena packed up all the stuff and they just, they pretty much left everything behind and they flew to Ireland too. And they said, look, let's make the record here. Like we haven't been in Ireland in years. Let's just make one here. You're next to your mom. I have a studio at the back of my house. The, ho the hospital is literally wrapped around there's where the state, the where, state where the studio is so i could just climb over the wall every day visit my mom come back over and, and write songs not knowing that every day my mom is getting slow and slowly worse and i'm writing all these lyrics and thoughts and ideas next to my mom's deathbed and i'm coming home at, into danny in the studio and i'm just spilling my guts out and we're just writing all this music and it's so supercharged that we don't know what to do with it we're just we're just laying all these songs down right and and it's just just go like that's where you know break even would come from that's where you know man it can't be moved comes from and all from these sessions and and uh and about 10 months later my mom had passed away and it was obviously a bad time for me and i just wanted to say throw in the towel and fuck this industry again i don't really want anything to do with yeah, it. yeah puts in perspective what really yeah matters. and then you suddenly think well you know you got to get your ass in and right because it's what my mother would want right she'd want me just to if make it make a thing of this try and make it happen because i'm broke it's, there's, there's nothing happened for me i'm also now 30 years old this is not a you know it's not going to happen for me it's, i'm really at the end of my chances here of, of things kick off and um it was starting to snow in london one day and we just finished off a session and we were like we're constantly in the studio we're constantly working we yeah we no fucking social life we've no friends anymore it's just getting let's just go home let's see what are we doing here so we just jumped a plane and decided to, it was late, it was like maybe eight o'clock. We might have landed at, maybe landed about 10 o'clock in Dublin and maybe around 12 o'clock I got a call from Dan saying his father passed away suddenly. Oh, wow. Mm. So, yeah, I got home. Um, I got home and there was an ambulance outside the house. Literally, I don't know why we decided to go home. It was, it was weird. Just so weird. I, otherwise I would have never got to, you know, potentially say goodbye to my dad, you know. Um, but he was there. Yeah, he was there fine in the morning. By by night time, he was gone. He had a stomach aneurysm, which ended up leading to heart failure. But um, yeah, it was crazy. Right smack bang, like we were just finishing the record. So I, I played him. He'd got to hear like break even. He did. He mm. definitely. Yeah, he got to hear break even. Mm. Did he? I mean. I I can't imagine a father being... Especially a like, songwriter as well. You know, a songwriter, like, yeah, hearing that song. I mean, we were saying the other day that mm. if there's one lyric that people ask me to write more in yeah. a session, it's like people say, oh, we need a, <laughs> you know, because when a heartbreak, <laughs> yeah. no, don't break even, is is the line that everybody says. Oh, wow, can we get a song, a line yeah, like that? Funny. I mean, when you played that for him, I imagine his response was... It was. It was seemed to be honest. It seemed a lot deeper than it normally w was. But I, and I think to a musician, when even my first song to him sounded like break even. Yeah. If you know what I mean, like in mm -hmm. a probably pride kind of a way, uh, he because he always just wanted one of us to kind of do what he did because he was a pro quite a prominent songwriter in Ireland. He'd had um, a number one um, with another big act um, years ago. He was in show bands. He'd done. He'd. He kind of got to the point where we were at where we had a record. He had a publishing company with the Beatles publishing, um, uh, sorry, publishing deal with the Beatles publishing company at the time. 
Um, so he'd gotten to a certain level, but then life takes over. You got six kids. You got to, you know, put food on the table. So he ended up going into kind of industry. First off, he managed a few clubs around town. This place called the System McGonagall's actually was originally. Um, and then ended up kind of going in entertainment, went into um, managing the golf course, which was right right beside where our house was. So, But every Friday night, few drinks fucking straight on the piano you yeah. know get everybody in the pub back to the house yeah. you know you know he's still yeah. he's still that guy um so to kind of for one of us to have finally done what let's say had been almost in a generation in the making you know that that's kind of the bittersweet of i think for me making it i wouldn't be where i am today without my father doing what he had done but it's also like with mark's mother as well it's also i guess extremely frustrating that he hadn't seen any of it. You know, my dad used to, he used to sell sandwiches in a pram outside Crow Park. You know, the place we we just played, it was 80,000 people in Crow Park. He, he, like when he grew up, you know, he was outside with his pram just trying to make ends meet. You know, his mother passed away when he was very young. So he was just trying to make ends meet as well. It's like, for him not to see that is like kills me every day. But at the same time, you know, if any, if any part of this had been changed, it, the first record wouldn't have been I guess so emotionally electric, you sure. know. With that, that's what, weirdly enough, when we, we did, we, he, when he went through the death of his father, then it was almost he wanted to throw in the towel. And then it took, obviously, a grace period of the two of us to come back. And the music's what brought us sort of back and going, these songs, though, you know, we have to let people hear these songs. This is what we have to do. So the deal was that if, if, we, if we get a song on radio, we'd be happy. If we, if we end up just playing a couple of pubs and a couple, right. let's just do it for the love of, music and let's just that that's what we do because it's always been a punch bag for us music is always a way that while someone else was out there stealing cars or putting graffiti all over walls our way of being creative was to write songs and stay in a room and just you know jam out and that was what we did so we said look that's it's good for us let's just complete this um this mission this mission let's do it so we did it um um when the album came out it was if i can't even tell you how fast it hit it hit so fast when um, it it went like, number one and worldwide. In, yeah, worldwide. It was number so one in every country. It was, I mean, um, the songs were number one. We had like seven singles off that first record. It was just but it was, flying. I mean, I guess the two, like, you had so many singles on that album. Yeah. But, you know, The Man Who Can't Be Moved and Break Even seemed to be the biggest out of yeah. that, right? Yeah, they yeah. would be, yeah. Um, and I guess when what was the moment when you realized how massive it is? Because it's one thing when you're listening to a song, it, you hear a song on radio, it's it's really a cool experience. Yeah. But you don't really understand it until you see other humans that you've never met singing it. Yeah. Or when you're when you're like standing on a sidewalk and a car drives by and they're playing the song. Yeah. Or it's in a store and you see other people singing along to it. Mm. It's those moments where you're like, oh, this is bigger than Yeah, yeah we, we than, start to get booked studio. on all these massive shows. So in Ireland, there was one called, there's uh, a, a festival called Oxygen, for example. And Oasis are on the main bill, and here we are, a new band, and we're playing the next night on the same time slot yeah. as Oasis. Yeah. And they had something like 60,000 people. And as we're walking up on stage, I'll never forget, it's only months after a record out, and I'm thinking, we're not ready for this. This yeah. is like the biggest thing. I mean, we shouldn't be this big this quick. It's It really was a worry for yeah. us. We only had like a 40 minute set. Yeah, we didn't have man, we only <laughs> one album. We don't, what are we going to play? I mean, and then I, I got really nervous. I was thinking, there's no one out there. No one's going to show up. What are they doing even putting us on this slot? I don't know. I had this madness. And I remember 
only now when I look back, they, they were filming us backstage talking about this. And, yeah. and, 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 but we didn't know they were showing this to the whole fucking crowd. And we didn't know this. So when we I'm walk, literally like... Yeah, like yeah, we're stressing out. Like, like they probably it. thought it was like a show because they th- people think of. I mean, yeah. we'll get to superheroes later, but people think that that are, you know artists are superheroes. Yeah. If they're if you're a fan of somebody, they're yeah. larger than life. And here no, you we are backstage dying. being we're like, dying. I'm dying. We're yeah. dying, and, <laughs> right. and not knowing that yeah. it's on the big screens too. It was only later we and we walked out and there was seventy five thousand people for us. So we had we had an increase on any band that was playing in the whole festival, and it was just. I can't even. It was one of the. We won an award that year uh, for the show because it was like one of the, one of the biggest and best the shows. Band, it was almost like it felt like the band's coming of age. You yeah, know, like it was crazy. You two come back from America after conquering, you know, America, and it's that's like, got to be the moment. Is that? You know, I think you're, that was the moment. You're on that stage. You're like, oh. When we oh, heard those, so- when we heard those I songs, stealing for- ice oh. and putting it in the bathtub. Yeah, you know that, yeah. This, that there was a reason for the struggle. Well, yeah. I, I think there's there's a magic moment. I mean, there's the reason why I'm in the industry, and I've only after really realizing that since being in the band and having having the songs that you write. You know, like if you get songs cut by other bands, they they it's almost like. They take you. They're trying to interpret your emotion and what you meant. Sure. Mm. Then they're singing it to their audience. Do they really get what they mean? Are they invested in the song? Do they know what that lyric meant? How hard it was to maybe get that feeling out of me onto someone else to purge it. You know, because that's what a lot of our songs are. We're purging our our fear, our anxiety, our pain, everything. So to be able to purge what feels like your whole life like your parents passing away, the struggles that you've been, the, the fact that you've been sleeping on couches, starving, you know, all these things for a dream, for a song, for something that doesn't exist, for like, you know, for the song that I think inevitably we're all pretty much trying to write the song that either number one, change the world or yeah. change your life at mm, least, yeah. you know. But to have that moment on stage where you're singing something so deep about your parents or a loved one gone or whatever, to have the, the amount of people out there because we wrote this, these songs in our deepest, darkest moments yeah. on our own, in our bedrooms, like, you know, when, when you're so close to, to the edge. But then to see these, these people singing it, when you don't have the voice to sing, when you don't have the gusto to get up there and perform, the crowd are just like, it just raises you up so... It's like a spiritual thing for me yeah. to hear the crowd singing those lyrics. Number one, I can't imagine what it would be like if they were singing back someone else's lyrics... Right. If I'd never had anything to do with the songs, I'm not knocking anybody who doesn't write their own material. But I am saying that if you don't write your own material, please do because the feeling that you, you can get, experience that. oh you my god, it's, I mean, it elevates you. We so thought much. it was music is a diary for us, and that's all it was. So we didn't know other than the expression of opening yourself up so much, you know. Did it make you, I mean, I feel like if you're in front of 75,000 people, which has now happened a couple of times for you guys, mm, yeah. maybe more than that, yeah. does it, um, how do you not cry when you're singing you did. I, I, yeah. I, I, I come close to it, you know, there's a part, you know, we're very grateful to be where we are, where we are. I, as a lead singer, and I, as a person, as a, as a, as, as a frontman of a band, I'm, it's all I'm like the pain never goes away. It's always just there at the surface. I may do a good job at like hiding it and smiling, but the performance of the song to me, when you come and see us perform, we are the living embodiment of those songs. Sure. I'm not just walking through break even when I sing it. 
I'm trying to get back to that same Place. moment, and I do. Because when you, you wrote know what? It, it's you know. that fresh. You mm. know what I mean? If you're not, if you're not trying to get over something that was fresh, you're looking back on it. You know, the song every time you sing it has a different connotation, but it still always hurts, no matter what. When I sing it, or if it's in the morning time, seven in the morning, or I mean, you're night, you're a you know? playwright who's who's yeah. also the lead actor in. Absolutely. That show. Yeah. You know, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the difference. Like you don't knock you don't knock actors who don't write the, the play. No. And you don't knock playwrights who don't act. Yeah. But you know, if you're able to to believe in the writing and then perform it, you know, yeah. that there are a few people who Like can, I said, it's like one yeah. one man show kind of thing where if you write yeah. your own thing, you perform it and like the the sense of achievement you get from it being applauded at the end is like yeah. oh my god I just full circle I know what this whole thing is yeah that just, was really like, a shocking thing I hadn't been performing you know? in a long time it's like well but that thing started from bedrooms and to see that same thing to go yeah. bedrooms to where it is now but Ridiculous. that's that's a different human story um, but it's not totally different anyway uh, a couple other questions for you these aren't really questions it's a conversation. Yeah. Conversation of love. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, for the first time, fifty-fifty uh-huh. co-write. Yeah, that's like that's a massive achievement. Mm. I think one thing is also it's like when we talk about all those other co-writes that have so many different writers. Yeah, and then here, now probably ten years after you guys started writing together, you're still writing songs, and that you know I don't know if that's your. Biggest record out here? One of them. Yeah. One of, yeah, you one know? of, yeah, it's up there. And it's still something where, you know, at that point in your career, are you realizing how, I don't know, there's some, there's like a new achievement whenever you can prove longevity? Mm. Yeah. You for, know? And for, it'd be like, we're doing this together. For us, like our second record, um, let's say amongst critics and stuff was like they 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 smashed it out of the ballpark, yeah. you know. Because there's always a thing of like this, you know, the difficult second record. But we'd been writing for such a long time. This isn't our second record. This is like our it could be our twentieth record. Yeah, right. yeah. you know, and just, we're it's not nervous writers. You know what I mean? Like we're we're now about a month away from release, and we're still like, well, what's it, which one we pick as a single? We're not like. We know we can right. do the job. So when it came yeah, to you that, can tell, you can tell that in a session, you guys have enough confidence yeah. that it's like that. Um, you can tell you guys have been collaborating with people. Yeah, yeah, and we, and we get it, and we yeah. understand it, and and and, we, and more than anything, we have loads of fun doing it. I think for us, that was it. I think when when it came to for the first time, we'd gone back to Dublin after the first record, and uh, the recession had hit Ireland really badly, and. It, um, People were losing their jobs and it was getting really bad. And here we are at the height of our success and our fame. Yeah. So we had our own personal recession for so many years where we were broke musicians. And when you go to pub, people had to buy you a drink and look after you. And here we are the other way around. For once in our lives, we're going to Dublin and we have money in our pockets and we have a success story. And uh, Dan went off, hung out with his family. I went off to hang out with my family. And we booked this uh, studio um, it was over the Christmas period and we just booked this studio in Dublin and we just said, well, let's meet up and just write a song because that's what we do, you know, just like leave the families for a minute, go in, spend a couple of hours together, just come up with something. I remember sitting down with him and uh, and, and he was like, uh, what are we going to, you know, what are we going to work on? I was like, well, what's going on? What's been happening for you in Dublin? He's like, dude, I feel so fucking bad. I mean, I feel like 
now that I've got a bit of money and nobody, everybody else I'm meeting has lost their jobs or some terrible shit is happening. And I said the same thing for me. I was in my local pub last night and it was just, it was nothing but horror stories all night. And I felt guilty about being successful. So I finally have the one thing I wanted to have and I feel guilty for it. It was a horrible feeling. And um, um, we just started talking about it and, um, and for the first time happened to be this little loop we had, which we started weirdly in LA about two years previously. Right. I said, well, I have this little loop still that we'd never done that with. It was just this guitar. Jing, it'd be cool if you pull, or, or you pull out like the old Cubase here. Yeah. Don't give me, we still have the tapes. Yeah, 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 we still sure. got those things. But yeah, I pulled out this little loop that I just I looped over and said, look, we had a bit of a start in this. It was yeah. a bit of a verse start. And, and then poof, we just wrote for the first time in about two hours and it flew out of us. And it, that's the thing, though. It, it, it happens when you write actual honest music yeah it tends to flow out differently yeah it tends to flow out and there's, there was kind of like in songs like that let's say the more emotionally charged songs i have this thing of like if someone says the lyric and it's the right lyric i choke up mm. because i can't like it's like it's almost like that's what i wanted to say yeah it's like if i'm saying even if i'm saying it you know there's yeah. there's another song we have on i can't even say the lyric now because it's on the new record it's quite an up-tempo song, but when I was saying the actual lyric, when I was saying, I was like, you know when you're just like forming it in your head? Yeah. And I got really emotional and choked up. And that's, personally for me, that's my divine rod. If I'm like a bit yeah. choked up on something, then I know I know for a fact other people are going to get choked up on it. For a fact. Yeah. So that was, that was a song I sang close to tears. I was nearly, I, was, I cried... Probably the last take I took, I, I cried from the first chorus on. Amazing. But, it, but I also sang it with a SM58 in the room. Yeah. yeah. With the, speakers, you know, sometimes with the speakers on, sometimes yeah. with the speakers off. Sure. So it's on the, you know, Spike Stand was like, dude, I took him four days to get the vocal sound the record. It was the worst mix of the It was the worst, song, you know? it was the worst vocal take. <laughs> it was terrible. Uh, let's say produced vocal take, but it was the best vocal. Right, you know, yeah, and that's had all the heart and all the feeling that we were looking for. So we didn't want to redo it, or that was where the song feels, came about. It feels different when you cut vocals in a room with the with everybody else. When you're in that booth, yeah, it's this introspection. I equate it yeah. with my yeah. own mind. Yeah. It's my own mind. It, and I don't it, like it there. Yeah, it's kind of it's not as real as when no. you guys started writing songs with each other yeah. in the room. Yeah. Why would you then separate that? And then all of a sudden, it's like let's put you in an unnatural it setting to sterile, cut this vocal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a strange thing. And, yeah. and, that, and that song, that song ended up being a bit like that because in the room recorded, we done everything inside the room, and and uh, and then the song came out. We decided that was the song we wanted to lead the campaign with, and we put it out. And yeah. it became the recession song. Weirdly enough, it became the song that everybody added to because at the time the recession was the thing that was on everyone's lips, and it was the biggest yeah. thing. And that became the kind of recession song. So every time the news talked about recession or every time there was a big march in Ireland about the recession, that was the song they wore like a badge, you know? It was really strange. So we became the working man's recession band all of a yeah. sudden. And we, we transitioned from being probably the four-long heart uh, broken band from what we'd been through on the first record to then being almost slightly fixed. But <laughs> Is that... Is that why Hall of Fame and superheroes become your sort of next big? I think so. Yeah, record. I know that there's a huge space in between all that, but yeah, it's because no, it starts to be like, oh yeah, we're representing something different now. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you get to when you get to let's say those, those both of our, both those records went number one. Um, when we're on our third record, we were like, you know what? Because we've performed these songs every day, is there the 
is there the belief that that people might be thinking that we just we're always trying to be like the you know the paupers like oh we're down here but we're doing okay kind of thing and we were like no we're actually fucking really proud of what we've achieved now you know no matter what at the end of the day even if it stopped after that second record there's I'd still be chewing on that as an old man, 60, year, yeah. 60 years old, sitting at the bar going, we made a dent in the industry. Well, and like you said in the beginning, people chose to spend that money from their wallet on your ticket. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And especially yeah. in a recession, yeah. that's how bad, you know, that's how much it was impactful. Yeah, big time, absolutely. Um, I wrote down that If You Could See Me Now is probably your most important song. I would say so, yeah. You know? Yeah, it was the first time we got to talk about um, publicly what happened with our parents. and Why hadn't you talked about it publicly before? Uh, I guess it was just tough because... I guess in a song. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we got asked a little bit about it in interviews and stuff, and I guess a lot of people knew. But I think a lot of people were, you know, as anything like with a death of parents and stuff, some people skirt around or are afraid to hit it straight on. And, um, and I suppose dealing with it meant, particularly for me, meant admitting that, you know, um, my parents was really gone. I suppose you have this weird thing in your head that when you turn travel, I can still sort of pretend that she's at home and it's all do, good. Do they see you now? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. I, and I hope so because that's all we've got in a way because now it's, you know, uh, I know my mom is never going to see the big shows. She's never going to see the successful part of my life. She's always going to know the unsuccessful part of my life. And I suppose that's the struggle. So that song kind of represented that moment, I guess, where you had to get real with yourself and say, well, hopefully if she can see me, sure, you know, then she'll see me on a stage doing well. But at the same time, being your parent, she'll say, stop smoking so much, stop drinking so much, because that's what yeah, she'll right, say, right? right. right? She so, won't care at all about No, she won't she's say, well, oh, yeah, yeah, good job on she's your... She's going to care about the fact that you're actually a good dad. Yeah, or I'm being unhealthy or, person. you know... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's what it became about, if she could see me now, would she pat me on the back or would she criticise yeah. me, you know, what would happen in that sort of way? And that's what became the fourth thing. And to be honest, I got really weird. I didn't want to perform the song, didn't want to release the song. Yeah. And everyone else around me was kind of like, we should you do it, you know, to. you kind of have to... And we did it. I just didn't want to be on like a breakfast television show at 7 a.m. singing that song. Like, you know, it just didn't feel right to Oh, me. and, t- you know, tell us about your dad dead again. Yeah, and after yeah, the break, yeah, you, you know, know, I'm going to cut to the guy over here and make for fish. waffles. You know, so. You know. But, you know, <laughs> but I will say, that's right. And the new waffle this yeah. afternoon. But I, th- I think that's what's so important, though, is that you're, by you guys being honest writers, yeah. that's why you guys have this career. That's why you're on the fifth album for the script. Why it, you're it on, is. is because you had the balls to say, I need to say this because my, you know, you're not here if it's not for your parents' yeah. support at some point. I remember you know? going and not and deciding not to play it some nights, and I go, no, you know, I'll. We we literally, do, you know, in the moment where between songs it goes dark and you can't. As a musician on stage, nobody knows that you're fumbling your way around trying to find your yeah. way around the stage. Well, we'd find each other on stage in the dark, like in in front of sixty thousand people, seventy thousand yeah. people. Like, are we playing this song? How or do you not? feel? Do you How do you feel? It? You want to do it? I mean, this is the way it would go on. People would think it was a plan. No, we'd we'd be in the dark discussing whether we were going to perform that song or not. Yeah. And then we'd turn at the band and go, "Let's do it or don't don't do it." And that was yeah. the call right then there. Go our feeling, and it was time to say no. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Yeah. I don't want to do this. Like I just some do it. festivals and stuff like that. It's just maybe it's, it feels you know, weird. It feels yeah. inappropriate. Yeah. You're like right. drunk and yeah, and doing things. Like, oh, it's like you know, know let's just jump to the next song. We jump to the next song, whatever. But I realized for not doing it 
that the amount of fans came to me like you know you don't understand that I've been through that yeah. too and I want to hear that song so I realised after a while your song stops becoming your song yes it becomes everybody else's song and that actually helped me to do it every time so from now on I don't mind now doing the song I'm happy to do the song wherever whenever because I've realised that you know people take ownership over the song and wear that song and need to hear it and if it means me singing a song putting my, make myself feel uncomfortable but it's going to make them feel a bit comfortable, then let's do it. Sure. You know? So To lighten it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just list a couple names and just tell me the first thing that you think of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Quick fire. Right. Will I am. What do I think of? Yeah, I mean... Flaky motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, right. He'll tell exactly. himself. He's, I was like, dude, you're late to everything. He's like, late, motherfucker. I invented late. <laughs> <laughs> Um, That's awesome. Oh, Will I am? He's uh, to be honest. He's like silent genius. He's like he is. He's sometimes so, I can't stand him because he 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 really has ADD. He'll tell you himself. He's yeah. like he's so hard to pin down to do stuff. Like we had him. Oh my god! Because I did. For those of you that don't know, I was on the show The Voice. So it was like the two of us were coaching together on The Voice, and he was he he had heard the song Hall of Fame. We we yeah. recorded Hall of Fame. Literally a, a few weeks before The Voice was due to um, go to air. And I played it to Will. And Will, he was just like, yo, I want the song. I was like, what do you mean you want the song? He's like, I want to cut the song. I was like, you're not cutting the song. It's going to be our first single. single. Right. And he's like, I need to be on that song. Let me on that song. So <laughs> I was like, well, what do you want to do? He's like, let's do a duet. I was like, what, with the peas? He's like, no, we'll just do it with me, yeah. and, me and the script. So he said, he was so on for it. He was like unbelievably on for it. And he was like, cool, I'll come down to the studio on the Friday. So we'd set up everything in the, you know, oh, Will's coming yeah. down to the studio. You know, the usual shit, get catering in, get everything in yeah. that we normally don't have because the big fucking star's yeah. coming down. <laughs> and we're there like, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. He's like, fuck him. He's not coming down. We're not doing the song. And I was like, no, dude, you don't understand. He will, I promise you, he will do it. We just need to like, just be cool. Corral him in. So I, well, I became really good friends with his manager, Seth. At the time, I was like, Seth, what's the deal? He's like, just wait. He, he, he is he will, he'll the show up, but just maybe four he, he in the will, Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we set that up. We told him to fuck off this first time. The second time, we set it up again. Again, he let us down. So I'm talking the next day. I'm like, dude, what? we're in the studio till two. Like, you can't do that to, you, to people. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was at dinner. I was like, who we at dinner? He's like, Bill Clinton. I was like, well, that's well, okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. We got dropped for Bill Clinton. You know? That's all right. right. Anyway, but like I said, I'm a hustler, <laughs> so I don't give a shit. I'll, I'm knocking your door. I don't care what you what's going on so yeah. I just uh, I knocked on his door I said what are you doing right now he said I'm not doing nothing he said you want to record the song now he's like right now I was like yeah so I just I stayed in his room yeah exactly I got in the car there with him is. we went to his hotel I called Mark from the car and I was like dude we're on his way over now he's like cool I'm doing a cab so he's like Phew. like 30 minutes later we're both at Will's hotel room I with the session on the on the, with the yeah, session drive. on the drive with the original Cubase yeah, yeah. <laughs> the original yeah. Cubase just won't let it go yeah. so he said <laughs> So we, we went into his room and he has like the whole kind of top floor of this uh, beautiful swanky hotel in London. He's on hemorrhaging money while he's on The Voice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we went up there, like literally took 30 minutes for him to record his verse. And then, you know, the genius said, we didn't have the part, you can be your champion, you can be your champion, like a great yeah. B-hook. And all great writers do, they come in, they add something that wasn't there before. Um, the weird because before that that part wasn't the song and now that part's in the song I can't imagine the song yeah, without, without that part it, you know yeah. I can't imagine the song without Will to be honest and it, it, it was almost like you know it was like we did a heist that night 
you know, yeah. when I got Will, when Will finally did the vocals and hand me the drive, I took the drive really smoothly, but protect it like someone was going to rob yeah. me. And then suddenly it was like, let's get out of here quickly. Yeah. So we, when, we, when we got out of the room, we were high-fiving each other in the elevator on the way down. Like we, silently, like, like, you know, don't act excited because yeah. you lose your cool, right? So we got down to the hotel bar and I remember sitting down at the bar just because we needed to have a drink before we left. And I just put the drive on the bar so we could see it. Yeah. And we have a drink. We're sitting there watching the drive in case somebody fucking yeah. magically came in and took it on yeah. us. Because, you know, that was goal to us at that time. We really wanted Will. It was really a big help to us to get Will I Am on a song like that. Sure. We really needed somebody to help us at that point. I suppose justify the script doing a song like that. Yeah, because exactly. we were these guys who, like, we wear our heart in our sleeve. We write prolific stuff, but it's all about our lives. And, and here we are writing probably the most positive motivational song we've ever written. Sure. Which, which weirdly enough, came about because uh, there was the London Marathon was on and it was just for normal people. It was, it was a, run, a cancer run. And all these people, these weren't athletes. They're just normal people, firemen, doctors, husbands, wives, all running in this marathon. Of course, my wife is running it, and I decided to go and wait at the finish line. I'm, I'm expecting all these fit motherfuckers to come running across, but it's people who are just yeah. struggling. I'm thinking there's no Hall of Fame for people like this. Yeah. There's only Hall of Fame for like rockers and people That's like right. There's no Hall of Fame for doctors. There's no Hall of Fame for nurses. and There's no Hall of Fame. So, so yeah. we went back to the studio, and they were working this idea, and we started talking about this, and... That's why, you know, that song came, became important to us because we wanted to create a song that kind of made normal, everyday people feel powerful and feel just, like, beating their fucking chests and feel great. Yeah. Like that, fir that first verse was just... It was literally a rap off the top of my head. Yeah. I went in, yeah. something like this. You can be the greatest. You can be the best. You can be the King Kong banging on your chest. And it was, like, just mess lyrics. Yeah. And it ended up just being like, I can't change anything. They're just yeah, exactly. so... Yeah. King, Kong bang, King Kong banging on your chest. Yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. has he even got to do with anything, yeah, you know? Yeah. But it just sticks out great. as a really kind of cool lyric. But since then, like, I'm, I say, you know, Will's a flaky guy in jest because he's obviously a very, very good friend. Sure, we, of course. We, he, like, there's four times a year where he'll just, out of the blue, just be like, dude, I need a P single or, dude, I need a Britney song. So we would like, I'll write something right. in the morning. Me and him, like, hung over, like, all right, cool, send it off. And, like, next thing we know, it's, like, cut with David Guetta and Britney and stuff. And then we'll, like, we'll do something else. we do, like... What a weird life you lead. It's strange. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, a couple others real quick. Cause yeah. I know you guys have good stories. Uh, Bono. Bono's a funny one because uh, when we were originally in my town, we told this story, we were... The, our managers were U2's managers. So they were looking after us as well. So we had met... Uh, Bono earlier on um, where we were brought to a Christmas party <laughs> you're going to tell the story and uh, we were uh, got a little bit drunk but well, he got Dan got really drunk and uh, uh, the I way was ossified I had no dinner I was so nervous and they put free wine in front of me and yeah, right. free wine like, when you're you know what's shocking is when you're really broke and, yeah. you can, and you're stealing ice there's still beer there. Yeah. I mean, Why is that? I like, you know. have no money, but there's always there's beer. always alcohol. <laughs> there's always yeah. alcohol. It always survives. That's so fucked up. Always so survives. Real. Yeah. It My always brokest, survives. that was probably the drunkest. Yeah. But that doesn't make sense. I don't know how. I had no money. I know, but other people are happy to get you drunk too. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Right. Because they recognize misery it, yeah. needs company, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what's up. So you're at the Christmas party. Christmas party, um, and uh, there we are. And this way, the way they worked the seating arrangements was they sat me right in front of Edge. 
And then Dan was sitting at some random table somewhere else. So I had Edge's ear. So I'm thinking, I'm going to ask about mic techniques. Yeah. I'm going to be asking about lyrics with that. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to bleed the man dry. That's all I'm thinking. Yeah. But obviously I want to be cool. So I can't do this and scare him off either. And then. I noticed he's getting pissed off across the room because he's thinking, motherfucker's talking to Edge. He shouldn't be yeah. talking to Edge. It's I should be talking idea. to Edge. So he came walking across the room to talk to Edge and, and thought he saw a chair and went to sit in the invisible chair <laughs> and then fell right <laughs> over on his Splat ass. Flat on the ground. So me and Edge were just looking at this. and Did, then Sorry, before that you missed out, I had, I had asked the Edge, you want, you want some wine? Yeah. And I poured some in his glass, but I poured it in his missus' glass while I was asking Edge something, and I totally overflowed his girlfriend's glass. That was, it was an absolute mess. I was all So he went falling all over the place, and then we just decided we were going to get out of there and get him home because we're, he's going to yeah. fucking embarrass us. So, he's going to embarrass you more. More. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, just well, kind of link him <laughs> on, and when he did the lads, Wait, link him, happened. and then he goes and... For, if, just decides to fall down all the stairs in front of everybody so on his knees duh, 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 and, he, and suddenly we're all looking so our exit from the party was Danny falling down like maybe 12 or 15 steps f- drunk falling I, down. I look around it's like every my, all my band all, all your idols are all like that was the original Bono story so I don't know if Bono ever wanted us to see us again after that right and, uh, when you guys were opening for them yeah. did you uh, remind them of the story or hell was it no. like oh no no it was a different person to right to pretend now we are photoshopped yeah. and everything yeah, yeah. you don't you won't right. recognize us no, of course right. the time, totally different people so he, it wasn't like they saw you and they're like you're the kid who fell down the no I think they knew but didn't know they told that story also a lot I'd like to think somewhere right now you two are telling that same story but I don't think so <laughs> okay. How about uh, Paul McCartney? Uh, it, that was a strange one because when it, right in the first album, when things were going crazy, we had we got really worried about um, everybody wanting us to play these massive arenas and stuff. So we decided no. In, in London, we didn't want to play an arena. We wanted to just have what was called a five night stand, where we played uh, to the equivalent of the same amount of people, but we played five nights in a smaller venue. And we felt we didn't want to grow too quick and, and have people, you know, seeing us in, that, in those big venues. And then suddenly someone bursts our bubble and we fail. And we didn't know, but Paul McCartney heard about the Five Night Stand and sent someone down to watch us play and, and, uh, and check us out. And without us knowing, they came, they checked us out. And then we get a call saying, Sir Paul is inviting us to come on tour with him. Yeah. And we were like, what the hell? And what year is that? Oh, so that was the the f- 2009, probably yeah. end of 2009. Yeah. So it was the first time um, Paul had come back to play the Beatles catalogue. So he was yeah. now, it wasn't playing just Paul McCartney songs, he was yeah. playing the old Beatles yeah. stuff. And he was opening up Shea Stadium. And Which is obviously, they had opened up Shea Stadium, the, the Beatles. What are you before. guys doing? I opening for Paul McCartney. So actually, trivia in, in Shea Stadium. Stadium. In trivia land, the, the actual, we got asked this, we're now part of trivia, which is who's the first band to open since the Beatles at Shea Stadium? We are. Because we played before Paul. So obviously, we, so we get, actually opened, we up opened Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium. <laughs> I mean, that's just it's, yeah, so it's, crazy. I mean, do, I, I assume at... I mean, I was saying to Mark while you were recording vocals, I swear I was focusing on you, but I wasn't. I was yeah. talking to Mark, and I said, it, it, when I die, and the most impressive thing that I'll ever be said on my tombstone would be, shook hands with Paul McCartney. Yeah. With this one brief interaction. It doesn't matter what I've achieved in my life. That's the fucking thing like, to tell my kids. Yeah, yeah, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I imagine yeah, yeah. that... And and maybe this is just me projecting, but I imagine that even as big as U2 is, mm. which is also yeah. kind of 
Massive. Incredible, yeah. especially in Ireland. Yeah. I imagine that that sort of puts you know the period on anybody who's ever questioned whether you guys are going to make it. That is the top trump card for any of the coolest people in the world <laughs> yeah. who are like, well, what's your band doing? If yeah. you pull out the Paul cards, it top it's trumps done. every... It's, yeah, a, it it's literally levels of like coolness, a hundred. Like how sick is that? A hundred. It's like there's not yeah, another top not, trump that. Yeah, yeah. He was beyond, and he was beyond awesome. I mean, even from the first time, we, we'd all heard when we were going on the tour that, you know, he walks the halls and, you know, he may pop in yeah. to your dressing room and, and we were all okay so it got to our dressing room in this moment in our dressing room which I'll never forget and you talk about this moment and we're <laughs> I'm all, in full we're, lead singer we're mode we're getting ready for we're all getting ready to go on stage yeah. and we're all just talking and we're kind of going what are we going to address Paul McCartney Is, do you call him Paul right. he's a musician maybe he wants to be called do you call him Sir Paul yeah you call him Maka like what do you call yeah, well, him well I've got yeah. like I'm just yeah. after finding I'm after asking the whole, no American flag. oh yeah I after asking the whole of Shea Stadium, I need an American flag for when I get out on stage. I want to get everybody behind me. So I wanted, up, what way know. am I going to do this? So we found, it was the American flag that's on the top of Shea One Stadium. Of the they pulled it down oh, cool. to yeah. give me so I could like hold it up during the show. Yeah. So I'm, I'm practicing. I'm like like singing Hero because we were singing David Bowie's Heroes. We did a cover at the time. And I have like this flag up and I'm going through the verse and I'm like shaking it up like this. And I just see, I have my back to the door and I just see everybody's face drop. Right, and I'm just like, ah, I will be king. And I'm like, oh, that's Paul McCartney. <laughs> hey, hey, Paul. Right. <laughs> yeah, and he just come in like a normal guy and, and, um, and, and kind of demystified everything in, in the sense of all the kind of the things you have him in your head as, and he's just a normal, normal guy. But the whole time he was talking to, to us, I have you know, an out-of-body experience because I'm talking to Paul freaking McCartney, and I'm yeah. thinking, I've just got this narrator going on in my head yeah. going, that's Paul McCartney from the Beatles. And then he'll say, well, how me and John used to record guitars. And, I, and the narrator go, that's John Lennon. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah, when yeah. me and John were going, just, just constantly this narrator in my head was reminding me about the situation I'm in. So much so that, um, you know, when he left the room, we were all kind of scratching our heads. Oh, what the fuck? That was just crazy. And we'd done our show and we come off the show and it was just a crazy thing. And he walked back over to say, well done, great show. He'd watch the show. And we're like, shit, this is just, this is just crazy. And I closed the door. And then I hear Hey Jude being played on acoustic guitar. So there's the acoustic version, Hey Jude. And I'm thinking, man, this is just coming through the speakers Damn of the, nice. you know, the venue. This is awesome. They're playing like an acoustic version of Hold the Fuck Up. And I open the door. And there's Paul McCartney sitting on the back of a golf cart, re- getting ready to go to stage. Yeah. Warming up. Just warming up. And he's singing Hey Jude. And here's me watching Paul McCartney sing one of my favorite songs hey jude on his own he's singing he goes he winks at me he goes, hey mark you're kind of thinking he's singing a song and i think here's me and paul having this moment and not realizing when i looked over my shoulder that 12 other guys from the dressing room was all having the same moment yeah, yeah. because <laughs> right, that's right. the story of paul's life of course yeah. he, he while i think i'm the only person that man is singing the song yeah. to there's all everyone else is the well, he know. was like yeah. even at his age he like we were doing things like he's like, so what do you what do you guys do before you go on stage? It's like, oh, we normally you know, have maybe a shot of whiskey. He's like, do you want to do one now? And we're like, okay, yeah, yeah. So we're like, right. sort of cracked out like whiskey. We're doing shots of Paul McCartney, and he's going on, he's going on stage. On stage like, like, 
Wait, what's my, going on here? My only moment with him is uh, it was the Daft Punk after party after they won the Grammys. Right. And uh, my friend is throwing the the uh, the party, and he actually he says he gives me the VIP pass. And I'm in this VIP section, which is maybe, you know, six feet deep and 20 feet long. And I see um, Skrillex, who I'd met a couple times, so I went up to say hi. And he was talking to Pharrell, um, who you guys obviously know also. And then Madonna came over. So I'm starting to talk to them. Like This is crazy. (laughs) I look back, I see my wife, and she's like, I don't know, shrugging her shoulder. I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is crazy. Um, and then I look over to her behind her shoulder, and there's Jay Z and Beyonce. Yeah. So I like walk back to her, and I'm like, "Hey, there's Jay Z and Beyonce." She goes, "Look behind you. There is Johnny Depp walking with Paul McCartney." <laughs> 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 and this is like for real. I mean, the yeah. name droppiest moment of my life. Yeah. And I just and I and I was like, "Paul, congratulations!" Because he won a Grammy. He goes he grabs my hand. Goes, "Congratulations to you too." But I didn't win a Grammy. But it was really cool that he said. I mean, so that was my moment yeah, with him. Yeah. And I, I just feel, feel like I had to say that, so it's on yeah. the record that it actually happened. <laughs> you know, actually, you actually, actually did touch his hand. I I did touch I touched his hand and yeah. I don't know why, but for some reason No, uh, I mean look it's it's a cool thing and it's it's like those things when you have they say don't meet your heroes. Yeah. Because you will be disappointed. But actually we found the bigger the star, the nicer they are. Because yeah. I don't think you can have a career like Paul McCartney has had without uh having long term crew around you there, a crew around him twenty, thirty years. Um, all the managers are all still the same people, all the business people are all still the same people because they all fucking like him and they, he's a likable, lovely person. Yeah. And actually, it's nice to hear when you walk up and shook the man's hand that he actually said what he said to you because it, it just really proves shows it. Uh, yeah, I, I, Don't get me wrong, I know a lot of the big stars will be slapping your hand out of the way. <laughs> yeah. You know? Get off mine. me. Mine? Get off <laughs> me. <laughs> Not yours. Yeah. No, especially mine. Um, <laughs> Well, on that note, because I, I know I had like 20 million things I could ask you, and I'm glad we went in, yeah. in the direction we did. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, uh, like you said, I think what's really nice is that you guys come in the studio mm. and it instantly felt like home. Yeah. And, and that says a lot about the fact that not only do you write lyrics about still being true to being from a blue-collar area mm-hmm. or still having to struggle your way up, but you still are that. And I think it really helps, failure really helps in somebody's life to, to recognize how fortunate they are to be successful. 100%. But you guys are are proving that you can be successful and still be a real human. And mm. you put that across in your lyrics. And I'm I'm happy that we're friends. Thanks, brother. And I Dope. think we're, we're going to be friends for a long time because you're not a bad songwriter yourself, ah. my buddy. <laughs> So yeah, and we love you. We love what you do. So we're we're really excited about working with you, and 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 obviously continuing that on. Like I was saying to you yesterday, we yeah. build relationships and friendships. So hopefully yeah. we can uh, absolutely right man. Yeah. And cool. in saying that, we're late for the studio. Let's go. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed. Be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to Jeff Sparger, David Silberstein from Mega House Music, and Michael White. Here's a sneak peek 
of next week's And the Writer Is. Dude, all the time, man. I mean, my first run here was... My first run was getting coffee for Suge Knight. For Suge Knight? Yeah, it was like, it was Twilight Zone. Because I was like this silly, petty Denver kid, you know. Sure. And, uh, I mean, even now, bro, there's a lot more popping in Denver musically or has been with Lumineers, etc. you know, over the last decade than there was when I lived there, you know, 2004 and earlier. So it was like, there's just nothing going on. When I moved to L.A., it was just, it was a huge eye-opener, right? So Suge Knight goes and turns so to you I, and so says, I start I working at this place. Oh man, I can't, I don't even want to tell that story. Well, you kind of have to. <laughs> I guarantee he's not listening to this podcast from his prison cell. Okay, so it has. So I can't exactly. You know, this is all. You know, I'm going to paraphrase, and I don't remember. This is all just me- uh-huh. out off memory. But it okay. happens something like this. I pull up the guy that owns the village. Is is he runs yeah. a tight ship, Jeff? Yeah. And I love him, man. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that's part, part of the reason why I'm here now is because they're so excellent to their clients. Not always the greatest guy to work for, just because he's a, you know, he's a ball buster. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I roll, I had my little Honda Civic, you know what I mean? And I rolled up and, and, uh, and Je- the first thing Jeff said to me was just like, don't fuck this up. You know, it was right, one right. of those. Yeah. And, and so Suge wanted, uh, uh, it was like a tall cappuccino from Starbucks with eight Splendas in it. Eight. Eight Splendas? So I raced to Starbucks. It was my first thing, you know, and, and, and I throw the Splendas in the coffee, and I didn't stir it. So I, but I, so I, I came back, man, and I remember pulling in, and, like, Suge was, it was, like, nine in the morning, okay? And he had been, you know, all night bender, you know, and he's standing in the parking lot, like, on the phone, and, and, uh, I pull up and Jeff's standing there and he's like, did you, you know, you better not fuck this up or something like that, man. And I hand Jeff the coffee and he gives it to Suge. Suge takes a sip and he's like, there's no Splenda in here. (laughs) Because I guess he probably tasted the foam on the top, right? Yeah. So I'll never forget. Jeff was just like, go put fucking eight Splenda in there. I'm like, I did. He's like, go put another eight. So I went and put like eight more Splenda in this fucking cappuccino, man. And he just pounded it. And I was like, this is great. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.